This morning, we are coming to the end of the series that we've spent the last two months on, uh, focusing on the prophet Ezekiel. And we've seen in that time a lot of judgment, God's righteous, proportional judgment inflicted upon the nation of Israel. And we've seen that Ezekiel has gone out of his way uh, to demonstrate that the just use of God's wrath. Now, there have been a number of times that I've been preparing for this series and have been preaching the series that it's just felt like it's been bad news, like constantly ruminating on God's wrath. But even in that, we've seen pockets of God's grace and mercy, that while Israel has been deserving of judgment, that that judgment has been restrained or withdrawn for the sake of God's name. And we saw, we, we looked into that a little bit more detail two weeks ago, that for the sake of God's name, that God is attached to His people. I was thinking about it like the covenant of marriage, that God's covenant with people is for better or for worse. He sticks by them. And yes, while there are some acts of limited judgment, I'm not saying there should be in marriage, please don't try to conflate those things. Uh, it was just a for better or for worse, but that God's act of limited judgment were meant to bring repentance to the people. His goal was for their healing. God has pledged Himself to them. Even though they have been faithless, He will be faithful. So this morning we get to the final vision or the final series of visions that displays the heart of God and that future restoration that's coming. And these visions describe the the structure and the operation of a new temple in Jerusalem. The the original temple had been destroyed in the Babylonian invasion and exile, and so these, especially to that first um, Hebrew hearer, would have been visions of hope that, all right, our people aren't lost, our religious life will continue. And so this section covers chapters 40 through 48, nine chapters of the prophet's book, and I will not be reading nine chapters of that this morning for you, but I have two excerpts in particular that I want to focus on. And this last stretch, and again, if you've been following through our Bible reading plan, we've been addressing, um, I mean, I think today was uh, chapter 43, so you already would have kind of gotten into some of this over the last couple of days. Um, But this last stretch is really a counter to the narrative, to the oracles that we saw in chapters 8 through 11 of Ezekiel. We looked at them, I think, week three of the series, and that was where uh, Ezekiel was shown the idolatry of Israel and this kind of progressive uh, uh, glory of God that departing from the temple in Jerusalem. So, you know, um, just a warning, if you have been reading some of these, some of these passages can be some of the more difficult parts of Ezekiel to understand, um, and so I'm going to give you a framework. There, there are three kind of main ways that you can interpret these passages, these chapters. And, and each one is going to have its own strengths and weaknesses. Um, and, and as you might guess, you know, I, I lean towards the final one that I give you, but there are faithful Christians throughout the years who have held to any number of them. And the first is this, that what, what you find in these texts is meant to be understood literally. You could even say literalistically. That it's a literal fulfillment of the future kingdom of God on earth, that as a result the temple and worship regulations described are going to tangibly occur. There will be a physical temple built in Jerusalem that'll be designed with the specifications described here, 
that animal sacrifices will resume, and their, their purposes will be different than they were in the Old Testament. Instead of people offering animals as sacrifices for their sins, they're instead going to serve as a reminder of Christ's atoning work. But, you know, th- there is a group of Christians that read these as future literal fulfillment here on earth. Now, the second group, kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, reads them symbolic. They say, okay, well, the temple's been destroyed. It's not coming again. This is meant to just be uh, a symbol instead that, that this relationship, this renewed relationship between God and Israel is meant to be a metaphor for the church age, you know, God's new covenant with this people where he's spiritually present with them. You know, fits with what we see in the New Testament because if you read it literally, it's kind of hard to place in very specifically in the New Testament, but the weakness is it's it's kind of a that's, a, that's a pretty um, broad reading, like very general reading of the text, because um, how do you fit the temple in there anywhere? And the final option, I think well, you could argue is maybe a hybrid of the two. Uh, it's meant to foreshadow the new heavens and new earth with the mix of the symbolic and literal, that, that this is part of God's final kingdom, a time where God will finally and ultimately dwell with his people. And you know, I, this is the one I hold to, and, and the reason that I do is, as we're going to see a little bit later, there are some really strong symbols in our text with what we see in Revelation chapters 21 and 22, which describes this kingdom of God. There's a lot of overlap there. So if you want to open your Bibles uh, at, to Ezekiel chapter 40, I'm just going to kind of give you an overview of these nine chapters, um, just so that you know what they're about before we look at the two uh, the two excerpts specifically. So if, you, if you're uh, starting at chapter 40, if you're looking at the ESV, um, the, the heading there says vision of the new temple. And so what's described in Ezekiel 40, 41, and 42 are a lot of measurements. It's, it's very, very dry stuff to read. A lot of measurements, uh, orientation, you know, which kind of cardinal direction things are f- facing of this new, dire- new temple in Jerusalem. And, and, you know, there's actually some connection with those chapters back in 8 through 11 that described idolatry and judgment because there's, Ezekiel is kind of given this tour by this weird angelic guide and this parallels, similar description of that angelic guide that kind of took uh, Ezekiel through uh, the city. You know, he had like a marking kid on his, his, his waist and he was marking people's foreheads. I don't know what he was marking, but um, so that's 40 to 42 is the description of the, of the new temple. Next, in 43 verses 1 through 5, I, this is the climax potentially of the entire book of Ezekiel. Uh, I'll, I'll read it and go through it after we get through this overview, but this section showcases the return of God's glory, God's presence to the temple. The remainder of chapter 43 through 46 described the renewed worship life, and this is the part of the, that describes how the temple facilities are to be used, you know, the reinstatement of the sacrificial system, rules for the priests, There's guidelines for this character, this figure called the prince, which I think it could be argued is the the shepherd prince that we looked at from a few weeks ago, Uh, you know, that foreshadowing, that messianic foreshadowing to Jesus. So that's 43 to 46. Uh, The first half of 47, 1 through 12, which is the other passage that I'll go into detail in a moment, describes the river that flows from the temple. And then lastly, the remainder of the book, the end of 47 through 48, describes the allotment of the land, where all the tribes of Israel are meant to be arranged. And what's significant about that is you have the temple at the center, 
and all of the tribes have equal access to that. It's not like the temple in Jerusalem originally. You had Judah. It was in the land of Judah. And so Judah had direct access, and everyone else had to travel a lot, which, which also, once they had their civil war, made it really difficult for the northern kingdom, the northern tribes, to, to come and join there. So anyway, that, I don't know, that might bore you to tears, but that's, the, that's kind of an overview of what those nine chapters uh, highlight. So let's, let's go into a bit more detail. Um, turn to, to 43, chapter 43, 1 through 5, and follow along as I read. The text says this, <clears throat> Then he, this angelic guide, led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of God, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Chabar Canal. And I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So this passage begins with Ezekiel being led to the eastern gate, and there he sees the glory of the Lord. And this, this, is, this text signifies, I mean, this is really hopeful for the people hearing it, because this is a direct reversal of precisely what we saw happen in Ezekiel chapters 10, uh, 18 to 22, and eleven twenty-three, And what we saw in those passages that we looked at four weeks ago is that God's presence progressively was departing first the temple from the Holy of Holies to the threshold to kind of the outer element of the, the, the city, the, the outer gate of the city, and then eventually to the hills, the mountain on the east to, to disappear entirely. God was abandoning the city in that. And and, and so Ezekiel here is watching the reverse happen. God's glory comes back, and he connects it with this language that we saw at the return of the book, right? He said it's at the Chabar Canal. That was chapter one, using the same language of God's overwhelming, right, sights and sounds, movement of many waters. It's, um, earth is shining. Now, a couple things that I think are going on here to understand the ancient Near East. Now, I've shared some of the, these themes before, so if this is, I apologize if this is new to you, because I'm going to breeze through it pretty quickly, but ask me about it, and I'll fill you in. You know, what often happened in the ancient world is that there was the creation of a temple, a structure, that was then filled with an idol, which was the uh, you know, the, the, the tangible expression of the God. This is outside of Israel. This is other nations around Israel. And we see this same rhythm happen in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, right? Because Genesis chapter 1, the six days of creation, there, I think you can understand it as a linguistic tool that God is creating habitations in days 1 through 3 and then filling those habitations in days 4, 5, and 6. And this is all under God, so it's kind of God is creating a temple under himself. So days one, two, and three, right? Light and darkness, uh, sea and sky, uh, land. Those are the habitations. And then he fills day one on day four, sun, moon, and stars. Day five, birds and fish. Day six, land, animals, and humans. But then in, in, um, you, you, you dive in a little bit deeper in Genesis 2, 
And there's all kinds of language of paradise, of Eden, of being very temple, of the waters and the vegetation and the flourishing. And this is meant to inspire that ancient Near East culture that this is a temple that God, that Yahweh has created. Now, the last step would normally be putting the idol of that God in the temple, but we don't see that in Genesis 2, at least not directly. Instead, what we see is God creating humans, man and woman, in his image. Hebrew word selim, which was used of idols, statues. So God's creating, he's putting his idol, his representation in the Garden of Eden, which is us. So that's kind of the background to this. So now what we have is we have this cosmic temple that has, you know, a manifestation here on earth in Ezekiel. It's been created. The habitation has been created. And so that's why immediately after chapter 42, 43 describes this pa- the same pattern of God's presence. Instead of it being an idol, it's his own presence dwelling within this temple. This has happened one other time in history. In 1 Kings 8, what was undone in chapters 8 through 11? God, God had dwelled within this temple or a temple similar to this before. But notice in this story, there's an expansion to that. The text of 1 Kings 8 says that the glory of God filled the temple. You know, there's this cloud so that the priests kind of had to pause their actions because of the sight. They weren't able to fulfill their duties. But in many ways, God's glory was confined to the space there in the temple. But look at what it says in our passage in Ezekiel 43, verse 2. That as God is returning to this temple, the earth itself is shining. There's an expansion of that glory. And I think that is meant to, to, uh, I I should, uh, this is kind of off the cuff. I I didn't prepare. I don't know. I imagine Ezekiel would have been first uh, because I can't remember which prophet it was. Um, Maybe it was Isaiah. Uh, But uh, the prophet talks about, right, that awaiting a day when the glory of the Lord fills the land as fills the earth as the water covers the sea. And that's kind of what we see happening here in this, this promise of this. And so as God returns to the temple, the earth is shining and that God has in essence returned home. It wasn't in what I read, but a few verses later in verse 7 says that he's here for good to dwell here forever. So that's 43, I think would have been a very significant part of this ark. Let's skip ahead a few pages and read Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12. Follow along with me if you wouldn't wouldn't mind. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from, normally water flowing from a house is not a good thing, but here it's supposed to be a good thing. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar, Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces towards the east, and behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water and it was ankle deep. And again he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was knee deep. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was waist deep. Again he measured a thousand. And it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be passed through. 
And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. And as I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the water goes, every living creature will swar- that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea. From En Gedi to En it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. This is a beautiful passage. Let me break it down. So Ezekiel sees this trickle of water flowing out of the threshold of the temple before running out of the eastern gate. And and it flows to the south. Before going out the east, it flows south. Now, this would have immediately pricked the ears of the listeners because in the layout of Solomon's temple, that was the archetype of the temple that they were thinking about, this trickle of water would have flowed through the spot where something called the Bronze Sea was located. The the Bronze Sea was this really large bronze basin. I mean, large. We're talking like 16 feet diameter, 8 feet tall. Would have held about 12,000 gallons of water. So, you know, basically like a small backyard pool. I tried to, I was like, well, maybe it's like a hot tub. No, it's like eight hot tubs, you know, stacked together. It was used for ritual washing. It was used for different liturgical elements of Israel's worship. But it also signified, in its original state, the power and authority of God in their Hebrew thought. Because in in Hebrew thinking, the waters of the sea were chaotic. They could not be controlled. It represented the unknown. It was a place of evil. So the presence of this bronze sea in the original temple was meant, I think, again, on a cosmic scale, meant to represent the forces of chaos being constrained, being brought to order by Yahweh. And so I don't think it's an accident that this water, this trickle of water, passes through the place which shows God's dominion over the elements. And we see some of this picked up in the New Testament, right, with, with Jesus saying, tell the, the sea to knock it off, be quiet when they're in the boat, I don't, I don't remember if I talk about this later or not, but in, in uh, Ezekiel, uh, or excuse me, Revelation chapter 21, when he says he sees, John says he sees the new heaven and the new earth, it says, and there was no longer any sea. That doesn't mean that there's not bodies of water in heaven. It means that it's meant to be a reference to evil. The forces of evil have been vanquished. Take, a, take what the psalmist says. This is Psalm 46, 1 to 3. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, 
though the mountains tremble at its swelling. The psalmist is saying, don't be afraid of the sea. Don't fear it because we know that God is with us, that he has mastery over it. So this, this water that we see begins as a trickle. And as, as Ezekiel walks along the path, he measures it four different times, every 1,000 cubits, which is about, uh, it's, it's about a, a quarter, a little over a quarter of a mile. So there you go, those that ran the Swissville Mile. You, you went the whole, the whole route of, uh, of his, his uh, measuring. So it begins as a trickle, after a quarter mile, roughly, ankle deep, another quarter mile, knee deep, then waist deep, and then after that last quarter of a mile, it is an uncrossable torrent. Now, you and I probably know this is not how rivers work geographically. It, it, you know, this isn't like a bunch of other tributaries feeding into a river. Um, there's nothing else coming here. Normally, um, it, 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 it's that this water is kind of swelling in and of itself. It's developing on its own. And this fits with the metaphor that we see in Luke 13. Jesus has a few of, of water, but in particular, uh, here's one that I like about yeast. Jesus says that God's kingdom is like a woman who puts yeast, a teaspoon of yeast, in 60 pounds of flour. It means that just because something starts small does not mean that it lacks significance. Because the end goal of that parable is that that meat, just a teaspoon of yeast, given enough time, it's going to permeate that whole thing. So does this trickle of water begin small, but by the end it's a, a raging rapid. Sometimes I feel like I'm in an infomercial, but wait, there's more. It gets better. Look at the effects of the water. Verses 7 through 12 describe its properties. It brings renewal, brings restoration, similar to what we saw two weeks ago in chapter 34, 24 to 31. This river brings change wherever it goes. It brings fertility. There's a great number of fruit trees. I mean, these, these are fruit trees that defy, you know, normal agriculture because they're producing on a monthly basis. Verse 9 tells us that wherever the river flows, everything will live. And man, I, this blows my mind. The greatest demonstration is in verse 8 and following. Verse 8 says that the river goes down in the Araba, which is the Jericho Valley, which leads to the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea, that place that is so salty that nothing, not even bacteria, can live in it. And, and it says that this river that is journeying to the place of death will bring life. It is capable of healing or making fresh the waters of the Dead Sea. This river, it brings to life the part of the world that is least capable of sustaining life. And Gedi and Eneglaim are two sides of the border of the Dead Sea. And it's meant to signify the entirety of the body of water, that this water has become fresh. And as a result, there is a flourishing of fish, all kinds of fish. But it also not, it points not just to an increase in resources, but vocations, because who's standing on the, the edge? Fishermen, who are standing on the boundaries, practicing their trades. Which again, I think showcases that in this eschatological, this final kingdom of God, there will be a practice of using our gifts, our vocations for the glory of God. I tell you, Craig's going to lead us uh, 
rock climbing on some of the nicest peaks in the world. Now, verse 11 might be a little confusing because it says that the swamps and the marshes of the Dead Sea will not become fresh, that they will remain for salt. And this does not in any way showcase that God is limited in his ability to bring life. In fact, it's quite the contrary, right? Because salt was a valuable export in the region. And so while the Dead Sea has been healed, it's important to to their hearers, to, to the people in the region, to know that their valuable access to salt has not been eliminated. You know, it's kind of, it just, they want life, but you also want to be able to have, uh, you know, your economic engine to be able to, to, to turn, and that, that's what Ezekiel is saying here. So it's not that God's incapable of doing that, but it was intentional that there is a space designated, all right, we can pool our salt, we can pool these things that are valuable. So what begins as just a little trickle of water that issues from the throne room of God brings renewal. Not just moral renewal. We saw that alluded to other places, you know, the whole removing hearts of stone, replacing with hearts of flesh. But this is a cosmic renewal. Not just a healing of our souls, but a healing of the world that we live in. So what difference does this make? Because the last time I checked, there's no water, river flowing out of Jerusalem. The Dead Sea is still salty, still dead. But this passage, I think, points us to two realities. The first has to do with access to God. Because Ezekiel, as I described, chapters 40 to 42, describe this new architectural layout of the temple. And it's got some pretty big, high, thick walls. And so it might appear on first glance that it's, you know, business as usual, that the divide between the sacred and the common continues. You know, in the past, God dwelled in the Holy of Holies, and one person, once a year, was able to be in his, you know, very palpable presence, wearing a rope that, in case he dies in there, no one can go in after him, pulling him out. The initial setup of these passages might seem that it's like, all right, walls have been rebuilt, off limits to outsiders. But I think the text gives us two kind of indicators that this has changed. At first, in chapter 43, we see that the land itself shines with the glory of God, right? His, his presence, his glory is no longer merely confined to the walls of the temple, but it's beginning to fill the world. And you have this confirmed with the presence of the river of life, that that power of God, the power of God flows in this river, out of his throne room, out to the land, bringing blessing, bringing life, healing, wherever it goes for all to benefit from. So I think access to God. Think about what the Bible says when Christ breathed his last and died. It says that the curtain in the temple, right, this garment, which would have been about the thickness of like a telephone book. This thing was, this sucker was thick. It created a barrier between the holy of holies, God, and the outside world, everything else. And when Jesus breathed his last, it says that the curtain was torn in half from top to bottom. Again, signifying access to God, that God's, that there was access. Again, and it's note, I mean, this could just be like coincidence, but I don't, I think God has a lot of intentions in, in the way in which the Holy Spirit fashioned the writing of Scripture, that the, the curtain was torn from top to bottom, not bottom to top, signifying who was doing the, t- the, the tearing, if you will. The, the, these metaphors remind us that we have access to God, that we can boldly approach the throne of God. 
we know in hindsight through the presence and work of Jesus Christ. Like, we don't have to cower on the outside. It's not like we're in a club waiting for the bouncer to let us in, and we're like, oh, probably not going to make the cut. But we've been invited to commune with him. So access, this gives us hope. The second thing I want to communicate is the effects of the river. Yes, the Dead Sea is still salty, but this promise in Ezekiel 47 is one that we can take to the bank. It hasn't been fulfilled, but it's coming. That there's a time when all brokenness is restored. And I, I want to read to you out of the last chapter of the Bible. Revelation 22, 1 through 5. And, and as I'm reading this, listen and see how many similarities you can see from the text that we just looked at in this passage this, this morning. John writes this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of nations." No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, this passage in Revelation is, I think, chock full of references to these earlier promises in Ezekiel. And they should give us hope. Because we might look at the world and think of it like the Dead Sea, see death and destruction, right? We see war, we hear rumors of war. We've probably been in situations where it feels like the wicked thrive and the righteous are barely surviving. I remember being in seminary. Uh, I was taking a course on the book of Revelation, and my professor was Dr. Sean McDonough. And, And I'll never forget that, you know, when we got to this passage at the end of the course, and as Dr. McDonough is reading it, he just, he's just breaking down in tears over it. To see this, you know, distinguished, grown man openly weeping with hope of the promise of the Scriptures, it, it, left, it left a mark, it left an impact on me. And he wept because he believed it to be true. He knew what it was to be stuck in a world of brokenness, And his tears were reflective of the joy and hope he experienced, trusting in God's promised deliverance. I mean, after that, that this section right here is where it says, come Lord Jesus, the cry is Maranatha. That that should be our cry, Maranatha, Jesus, come back soon. We, We want you to come back and set this world right. And so, kind of as, as the, the bookend of the book of Ezekiel, as we finished this book of Ezekiel, we've seen so many, many words of judgment. We've seen that the wrath of God was not on display in any kind of arbitrary manner, but that Israel had been disobedient to God, just as we often are. We also saw that God and His goodness would restrain that judgment. He's a God who shows mercy, not giving what was deserved. But He doesn't just leave us to our own devices, but He's promised restoration, that the corruption we experience of sin wouldn't be the final word in our lives. Like, not only would He sanctify our natures, bringing us into greater obedience with Him, but He would also restore everything that's been damaged through the wake of 
destruction that's been left in our paths and the paths of those around us. All that is broken will be restored. We haven't seen it yet, but there's a day when Jesus returns, and we will live with joy, we will live with gratitude in the kingdom of God, with Him forever. And and I, I hope that as Ezekiel serves as a reminder of that to us, it can move us as well, just like it moved my professor to to truly trust and believe in that. So as we wait for that, I've got just a couple of questions for us to to think through. First is this, what part of the book, as you think about Ezekiel, because there's some really challenging passages, hard to swallow passages in there. What was the most difficult part of the book to digest for you and why? Second is this, thinking about that restoration, which uh, some of this overlaps with what we talked about last week, but what is one area of life that you anxiously await God's healing restoration? And then lastly, meditate on those last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 through 22, verse 5, and use it as a time to thank God, meditate on it. Thank Him for His his present redemption in Jesus and the promise of future restoration that's coming. So let me pray, and then we'll close with one last song. God, sometimes when I look around me, it, I get disheartened, and I feel like, are you ever coming back? Have I put my faith in something that is never going to deliver? Because it just has been so long. Lord, I ask that you would move in us, sending your Holy Spirit to be a source of comfort, directing us to the Scriptures so that we can remember your word and the things that it says, that we can cling to, not my present experience, not looking right down at the potholes in front of me, but looking out towards the horizon, God, that you've described it while it seems like it's been a long time for us. Lord, you you aren't tearing needlessly. That whole thousand days, one day thing that you say, Lord, draw us to passages like this that remind us that your word is true. And if your word is true elsewhere, it's true here. That we might anxiously await those days. That we might look forward to the time when there is a healing of nations. That there is no more strife in the way that we see it. Lord, that cities have been rebuilt. That there is no more uh, uh, chaos in the midst of interpersonal relationships, that there's an end to racism and misogyny, that that there's an end to, to, to Christian nationalism, whatever country that might be a part of, but that we are all under your banner, Lord, for the healing of the nations. Lord, we lift all this up to you, the only one who can do it. In Christ's name, amen.